guys have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 7 through 24 tonight, uh, finishing off the third chapter uh, with a message entitled, The Fallout. Last week, we looked at the fall of man, and so we've got a little play on words here. We're going to look at the result of what happens after that. Uh, last week, we had discussed the progression of that conversation between Eve and Satan and the ultimate choice that they made to sin against God. And today, we are going to get into the fallout of what that sin cost. All right? So let me pray, and we'll dive into the Word of God. Father, we thank you that we are able to come to you in that moment, Lord, that special 20 minutes that we are able to just pray for one another and submit our requests. Uh, we pray that um, now as we dive into your word, that you would speak to us, that you would prepare our hearts uh, to partake in communion. Lord, it's so perfect, the part, the place that we are in, in Genesis, uh, as we see the result of sin, but we see the promise of the future Redeemer. And so, God, we pray that you would uh, stir us up for love and good works today, that you would stir us up for your, your glory. And we love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the fallout. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. You guys there? Turn there. All right, so uh, first, and we're going to jump right in because we have that extended time of worship and uh, we want to give that time to the Lord. We are going to be shooting through what we got today, all right? You guys ready? All aboard? All right, so the first thing that we're looking at is the result of man's sin. The, this is the direct result. We saw that conversation, the temptation. We saw that choice. And now we're going to look at verses 7 through 13 and then also kind of hit verses 22 through 24 quickly. But look in your Bibles with me. We'll read verses 7 through 13 and then jump down to verse 22. The Bible says this, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave me, uh, gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Jump down to verse 22. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever in a sinful state. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword, which he turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The result of man's sin. This is kind of the immediate result, okay? Adam and Eve take the bite. What happens next? Well, the first thing that we see under this is that they experience shame, uh, which they had never experienced before. Now, they'd only been most likely alive uh, only a short period of time. But we're told here in verse seven that their eyes were open and they knew. They looked at each other and like, ah, they, they were naked. 
uh, and, and they sowed, they, they, they felt shame. And so they took these leaves, these fig leaves, and, and began to cover their bodies and made for themselves coverings. You know, one of the reasons Satan's temptations are so powerful is that there's truth in them. Their eyes would be opened, but it would be opened to their own sin. Not that they were going to be these like dem, uh, demigod type of people. Uh, they were not. Their eyes were open to their own sin and shame. David Guzik describes it like this. It says, as if someone promised a deaf person that they would be able to hear, and then when they are able to hear, all they hear is screaming. It, it's a horrible picture, but it's a, it, it's, it's a good parallel to what we have here. Yeah, your eyes are going to be open, but you ain't going to want to see what you're about to see. They, they were now understanding of their own uh, sin and, and innocent, uh, not innocence, the opposite of that, their own guilt. And so they now had this experiential knowledge of evil, which created this kind of self-conscious awareness of how sinful they really were. And so they felt shame regarding their bodies and they began to cover up. And what's kind of interesting about this Look at the last verse in chapter two. Things are great. This is before the fall. We're told in Genesis 2 verse 25 that their nakedness was actually a good thing. It was a sign that they had this open relationship with one another, that they were unashamed. It was a good thing. Now their nakedness has become a sign of shame. What's also interesting about this, look at, look at chapter 2, verse 25, the last verse in Genesis chapter 2, we have the word naked. That word is repeated in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, what, we, what we're reading. But it's, a, it's the same word in Hebrew written differently. This shows us that there is a significant difference, that nothing changed in a sense physically with them, but it's that there is a difference in their perspective. They now experience shame. And so this is, listen, shame is always the first result of, of sin. And this is how Satan works. He, he, can, he tries to convince you of it. He tries to get you to do it. He, there's that enticement. There's that conversation. And then right when you do it, you experience something called shame. And sometimes Satan himself, not himself, but at least the demonic forces capitalize on that, and we then feel greater condemnation. So shame is the result. Secondly, it's also separation. Not only did they experience shame, that's why they took those leaves and hid themselves, is because they looked at themselves and felt exposed. They felt that they, their eyes were open to their own depravity, and they covered up. The problem was is that they, though they could cover up from one another, Right? They could put leaves on their body. That's them trying to hide themselves from their marriage relationship. But they couldn't hide from God, but they tried. Right? We see this in verses 8 through 10 of what we just read a moment ago. This would ultimately lead them being even separated from the garden. They would never again uh, in, until eternity have that open type of relationship they had with the Lord. And so, listen, it actually, at first, it wasn't God separating from them. They sought to separate from God. And this is what the, this is the second result of sin. It'll make you put distance in between your relationship with each other because of shame. 
but then you'll actually seek to distance yourself from God. It seems like there was this routine where God would actually appear to them in a, in a, in a bodily form, we're told, in the cool of the day. We don't know exactly when, what part of that day is. People have speculated that it's the kind of afternoon breeze that would come through the garden, and that's when God would meet with Adam and Eve personally. And they knew that time was coming. And so we're told that preemptively, when they hear God, like normal, whether it was footsteps, whether it was him calling out to them, they hide themselves because they had these, these feelings of shame, guilt, but ultimately fear of judgment. Because what did God say would happen when they eat of the fruit? That they would surely die, right? Now they look around, they're like, we're not dead, but I do notice that you're naked now. So I don't know what's happening. We cover themselves. It's a disaster. But they feel these, these feelings of shame. The shame then turns into them trying to separate themselves from God because they don't know what God is going to say or do at this point, but they know it's not going to be good for them. And so now God, like he normally would, seeks to meet with Adam and Eve. And this would be the first time that God would ask a question, where are you? Now, did God know where they were? He did. So I believe this question isn't like, where are you? It's not like Batman, okay? It's not like, it's not like this like deep, dark, like, I'm going to mess you up. Like, no, I think when he says, where are you? It's, it's an opportunity for Adam to come to the light. And rather than seeking to separate because of these feelings of shame, guilt, um, and fear of judgment, which separates us from God... I believe it was this creator type of heartfelt cry of like, where are you? And so he calls out to him and, and uh, because there was that clear separation. Now, this separation, though, wouldn't just be experienced this, this for this moment. But that's why we added the end of chapter three here, because we know that this separation will go beyond just that moment, but will actually go into them being separated from the garden. God will drive them out. They will not be able to eat from the tree of life, which was God's grace. Because if they ate from the tree of life, they would then live forever in that sinful state and they would stay like that. And so God has to guard them from going back into the garden. But this was a symbol, right? The garden was what God created for them to live in. It was their home. And so sin took away and separated from the place that they were supposed to be, which was ultimately with the Lord. And then third and finally, under the result of, of man's sin, we find a shifting of blame. Shifting of blame. You see, at this point, he, he asks, where are you, Adam? Adam responds. Look in your Bibles and look at verse 10. He says, so he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Was Adam naked before? Yes. Yes. So now it's Adam's recognition that he's naked and he feels guilt, shame, and fear of judgment. And so he is now afraid of God. Sin does that. Sin causes that. Uh, but notice here, then God, God gives this, this, this opportunity to come clean. Okay, look at verse 11. It says, and he said, being God, who told you that you were naked? Isn't that a funny question? Who told you that you were naked? And then he asked him a second question. 
have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Did God know the answer to both of those questions? Absolutely. So this was not God seeking information. This was God giving an opportunity. I always wonder what would have happened if at this moment, Adam came clean. He's like, you know what? This is, this is, this is how it went down. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. And this is on me. This is not on her. This is not on that stupid snake. This is not on anything. This is on me. What, what would have happened? I don't know. But we see that Adam's response is much different. We see this shift blame begin to increase with an attitude of self-defense. Self-defense. Sin makes you defensive of yourself. Then the man said, the woman, that woman, whom you gave me, gave to be with me, she gave of the tree and I hate. Do you guys hear this? The first thing out of his mouth is the woman that you gave me. So who's he actually blaming here? He's actually blaming God. He goes beyond like, yeah, it was the woman who did it, but you gave her to me. So it's almost like he begins to shift that blame, not only to his wife, but to God himself. And so then God looks to the woman and he, he says, what is this you have done? What's, what's, what's Eve's response? That serpent deceived me and I ate. Her response is a lot better than Adam's. She's still shifting the blame, but at least she says like, I ate it. Like it, it, he deceived me. Like she, she fesses up to what happened. Listen, whenever the criminal tries to become the victim that's when you see how far gone they really are. Adam, who ate willingly and knowingly, he wasn't deceived. Now begun, he tries to become the victim in the scenario. Do you know anyone like that who does something wrong and then they try to act like they're the victim? You guys have any siblings like that? We, I'm, I'm sure you do. This is, this is in our human nature that when we sin, we want to point the finger, right? We want to point the finger and shift the blame. But this shows us it's a matter of, it seems like moments and minutes that pass between these. And look how quickly sin has already developed in their heart. It was one thing like they sinned against God, but now they're like blaming each other. They're blaming God. It's a whole disaster. And so the result of sin... Uh, is not so good in any way. And so this was the immediate result and aftermath of their sin. But now there's a transition. God hears them out, and now it's time to sit them down and begin to share with them the repercussions of what's going to happen. This is also known as the consequences or the curse of sin. This is what we find in verses 14 through 19. Now we're going to read this, and what you're going to notice is that God addresses each individual involved. He addresses the serpent along with Satan. They're connected. He addresses the woman. These are your repercussions. And then he also addresses the man. Repercussions is just another, it's a synonym for the word consequence, okay? These are the consequences of man's sin. And so the f let's, let's read it, verses 14 through 19. You guys good? You guys have your Bibles open? Look at verse 14. It says, so the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? Wait, we already read that. Look at verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. 
On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Sounds pretty good. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Sorry, ladies. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, which I commanded you saying, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground for your sake. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field and the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it. You were taken for dust. You are and to dust you shall return. Not fun stuff by any means. He first talks to the serpent. Now, what you'll notice about his interaction with the serpent is he doesn't give Satan a chance to like own up to what he did, right? Adam and Eve, he gave these questions. There is this dialogue beforehand, but for the serpent, he says, all right, here is the deal. And verse 14, if you're taking notes, verse 14 describes to us the repercussions for the animal itself. And so if you're taking notes, verse 14 dash snake consequences, okay? Snake repercussions. Verse 15 will tell us the repercussions for Satan himself, apart from just being, you know, indwelling the snake in this moment. And so uh, it's a real bummer for the snake, but he got caught up in this whole thing, uh, though he was possessed, but there's there's a consequence for him. We're told that the serpent, like snakes, would become more cursed than any other animal. To sum it up, he basically is saying that the serpent, the snake, is going to become a detestable animal. Notice what he says. He says, on your belly, you shall go. That's the first repercussion. How is he going to be more cursed than other animals? Well, you're going to travel on your belly. This is the idea that whatever sort of dignity and nobility that the snake had before, it would be taken away. It would then become a low, groveling creature that other people would detest. In some way, we don't know how this looked, but from this verse, on your belly you shall go, we believe that the snake traveled upright. It's a, it's a hard picture for us to see, but some way, some people think that a snake maybe even had legs of some sort, legs and arms. Uh, the text does not say that, and so that's speculation. But some way, if God said, on, the be- on your belly you shall go, then that means beforehand, before the fall, a snake somehow traveled uprightly. So kind of wild thought, but that's what we're told. And then the second thing here for the snake, he said, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now, if anyone has snakes or you know about snakes, you know they don't eat dust. The idea of that phrase is the idea of total defeat. The fact that it would eat dust the rest of its life, I mean, you can kind of think about like, you know, the phrase if you're, if you're in a race and you say, eat my dust, right? That, that's the idea, like you're going to lose. And now you're getting the, the, the dust off the, the, whatever's coming behind. You guys get the picture. Um, but what this imagery has come to is this idea that the serpent, anytime you look at a snake and you see how it lives, it should be a reminder of Satan's ultimate defeat. 
You see, Satan stepped back that day and thought he won. Just like when Jesus died, Satan stepped back and thought he won. But we know that all the workings of Satan will fail and his own demise is sure. And the snake is a symbol of that very thing. Romans 16, 20, I love this verse because it's awesome. It says, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. Uh, it'll be a sure demise for Satan. Now, we'll jump back to verse 15 um, to talk about in just a moment because there's an important prophetic promise that's attached to it. Uh, so Satan isn't quite done uh, being dealt with yet, uh, but we'll move on and come back. The, the second person that he talks to is the woman. And uh, Eve's repercussions for her sin was in two main areas. It was in the area of children and it was in the area of marriage. Um, it would seem like before the fall, childbirth was actually an enjoyable experience. And now because of the fall, because of what they did, it is now a very painful and uncomfortable and even sorrowful experience many times. Many scholars believe that the idea of sorrow connected with childbirth is, is, uh, it would be connected to those who experience miscarriages and stillborn babies. This would be a direct result of the fall, that that wouldn't have happened beforehand. Death would not enter the world, and so uh, those, those difficult things that women go through uh, are a result of this. Secondly, though, is also in marriage. Notice what we're told, your desire shall be for your husband. This isn't that, man, wives are going to be like real attracted to their husbands, and want them all the time. That's not what's being talked about here, okay? What's being talked about here is the idea of headship, right? Think about it. Adam was created first. Eve was created out of man. There was this natural order of headship within the home. The wife was to be the helper. This was about roles and not about equality. It's not that Adam was better than Eve, uh, and Eve was lower than Adam. It had to do with just headship, rules. Um, oh, sorry, not rules, but roles. But within the fall, think about it. Adam didn't take the role of headship as he should have. And he listened to the voice of his wife over the voice of God. So as a result, the woman would have this desire, this sinful, natural inclination to rule over her husband, and the man would now have to fight for this God-given headship within the marriage relationship. I can tell you without a doubt that this exists in many marriages, that the woman has this desire to call the shots and be the, be the pants of the relationship, uh, that has this desire to, to make all the decisions. Now, in a marriage, it's not a, remember, it's about role and headship. It's not about equality. Husband and wife, equal before God, one in Jesus Christ. But there's this desire because of what happened to rule over the husband, okay? That's just what the Bible says. Now, the, sec the third and, and final person that God talked to was the third person involved, which was Adam himself. And uh, he has what seems to be the longest list uh, of repercussions. And... Uh, I want you to notice, though, how God lays the blame on Adam here. L look at verse 17. He basically says, he says, look, he says, because you listen to your wife over listening to me, these are your consequences. Really what happened was, was 
Adam, in a sense, was the first idolater. You know what an idolater is? Someone who worships someone other than God. He made the decision to put Eve above God. That's idolatry, according to the Bible. And so we see that he's got kind of four really uh, main um, categories, if you will. We're told that because of what Adam did, he's, God says to Adam, the ground is going to be cursed. Now, why is the ground cursed? Well, think about it. What was Adam's first job? It was to cultivate. It was to tend and keep the garden. In a sense, he was a gardener. He was a farmer. And because of what happened, because it was a tree that they took from, now when, when Adam would go to work, it would be much harder. Secondly, we're told that there would be thorns and thistles, meaning as as Adam worked, there would also now, it would not only be harder, but it would be more painful. So there's thorns and thistles. Those didn't exist beforehand. So anytime you take a rose and you pluck your finger on accident or walk by a rose bush and it rips your pants, that's because of Adam, okay? Now, number three, uh, we also see that, that he would have to work hard for food. Remember, before God planted those plants, they were able to eat freely as they desired to just eat until their heart was satisfied. Now, every food they had, every plant, every tree, they were going to have to really work for and sweat for, and they could no longer freely eat. And then fourth, the worst and the biggest implication is that he would physically die. He said, dust you came from and dust you will go back to. Now, I want to go back to verse 15 for a moment. So that, that's, the, that's the repercussions. Does that make sense? Any questions on those things? Serpent, woman, man, okay? Now, I want to go back to verse 15 because in Satan's judgment and repercussion, there's also a future promise. There's also a future promise that you could easily read over, but it's important that we spend a minute on it. Verse 15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The church fathers, meaning those that, that the early church uh, fathers who would have came after Jesus, they referred to this verse as the proto-evangelium. Everyone say proto-evangelium. It's a big Latin word that means first gospel. So if you're taking notes, don't even try to write down proto-evangelium. You can try. And maybe I could look at if you spelled it right after service. But just, it's the first gospel. This is the first hint. And I love this. I love that God puts this promise of what he's going to do, even in the midst of the consequence. It's so like him. We're told that there's going to be enmity or hostility between Satan and mankind because of what happened this day. And it's true. Even to this day, this start, what Satan did was an act of war against mankind that's continuing to this very day. The Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We might be fighting against each other, but there are spiritual forces behind even when we fight each other. The real war is against Satan and the fallen angels. And there's going to be a day, remember we talked about it, God is going to crush Satan, and we'll get to more of that in a moment. 
Now, we're told here, and notice the picture. You guys have your Bibles open? Because you got to see it. I don't have it up on the screen. Verse 15. He says, okay, he's talking to now Satan himself. And he says, there's going to come a time when your seed, meaning who comes from you, and the woman's seed, who comes from the woman, a descendant, that there's going to come a time when her descendant is going to, that you are going to bruise. I'm sorry, I'm getting this wrong. It says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now there's going to come a time when the descendant from Eve is going to crush with the fatal blow, Satan himself. Basically he puts in here his ultimate demise, but he says at the same time, the serpent would bruise his heel. It would be a blow, but it wouldn't be a absolutely defeating blow. Basically what's happening here, it's a prophecy that tells us and speaks of the defeat of Satan and the victory of Jesus. The heel is in striking distance of the serpent. And so the serpent is gonna, is gonna attack one of her descendants. And it's not just anyone, we know him as Jesus. And God became a man and allowed himself to be wounded. When was that? Well, he was wounded upon that cross. He, he ultimately died on that cross, but was that Jesus's end? Absolutely not. And so it would be that very wound that would cause God to strike that fatal blow and crush Satan's head. This verse points to the victory that Jesus would gain upon dying on the cross. It's awesome. It's the first gospel. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. If you look in verse 15, the capital S, your seed, is a reference directly because Jesus, you know, Jesus is one of Eve's descendants. Now we know Jesus the God-man existed long before he ever took on flesh, but he is related to Eve because everyone is, all of us are related to Eve. And it would be him who was wounded. That's the idea of bruised. But in his wound, he would put to an end all of the works of Satan. And so basically, Satan would understand this, that, that he is going to be defeated one day. And this was that first promise of that. Does that make sense? Okay, and then we'll end with the immediate provision. Okay, there's two verses that we have not read within this chapter. The future promise is awesome. Uh, it's that first gospel. But we see, okay, what, what happens next? I mean, I mean, think about it for a moment. This is a pretty big deal. You have to wonder, how, how does Adam and Eve ever get over this? Are they ever like restored in their relationship with God? Will they still be allowed to have a relationship with God? Well, we get some insights of these two verses. Look at verse 20 and 21. This is where we're going to be closing. It says that Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So what we learned from verse 20 Eve was not yet named. She was referred to as woman, helper, wife, but she wasn't named yet. 
Kind of, that's, that's another indication that from the point of Genesis 2 to 3, there probably wasn't that much time that elapsed. Eve didn't even have a name yet, okay? And we're told the meaning for Eve's name. Someone tell me, what is the meaning of Eve's name? Yeah. Life, uh, life yes, but look at specifically what, what is said. Yeah. Yeah, mother of all living. Yeah, so her name means not just life, but mother of all living. Now, was Eve a mom at this point in time yet? She was not a mom. Now, I believe that this was actually a statement of faith on behalf of Adam. You see, the repercussions were super difficult to take in, I'm sure. They, they were being sat down by God, and, and, he, and he tells them this is what's going to happen. But there was that silver lining. We just read it, right? That future promise. And the promise had to do the fact that Eve would reproduce and that there would be a future descendant that would come and he would take care of Satan, that serpent of old. And so with this silver lining, I believe Adam making this statement of, of your name is Eve, he, he names his wife, which I think is one of the biblical uh, reasons why a wife takes the name of the husband. It shows that order that God created, that headship, right? But I think this was a statement that, that though she wasn't a mother, though they just got kicked out from their home, they, they just lost everything, that God's promise in the midst of the consequence was that there is going to be good that comes from you. And so I think Adam had this statement of faith and God takes that and begins to provide this immediate provision. We're told that God made tunics of skin and clothed Adam and Eve. Was it possible for God to make clothing out of plants? Was God able to do that? Okay, he was. But we see that God chooses to use the skin of animals and make clothing. Adam and Eve were probably wearing these janky, falling apart leaves. And God then takes at least one animal, kills that animal, takes the skin from that animal and makes clothing for them to wear. That's the picture we're given. You see, God didn't disapprove of them wearing clothes or at least the leaf clothes that they had on. What he didn't approve of was them trying to make their own clothing. He had to do that for them. And so in this one verse, we are given the origin of clothing. This is why humans wear clothes. You know, animals don't wear clothes because they never had this situation. We wear clothes because of this. Now, don't tell me about your cat that wears clothes. I don't want to hear it. (laughs) We see the first death. This animal was the first death that entered the world physical death. An animal had to die with the first shedding of the blood. We also see an establishment of a sacrificial system. You see, God was able to make clothes out of material, but I believe this was a symbol. Adam and Eve saw maybe one of those animals that maybe even Adam named, and God takes one of those animals. I believe it was most likely a lamb because of the picture and symbolism. Takes that lamb and before Adam and Eve's eyes kills that animal, They've never seen death before. 
takes the skin off that animal and makes them clothes. We're going to see in the next chapter, chapter four with Cain and Abel, that God seemed to here establish this sacrificial system because God had to have a new relationship. There was sin involved. And the only way that you can be in the presence of God is if there's a sacrifice. There's a sacrifice of blood. And so God not only physically clothed them, but he didn't use plants, but an animal because he now spiritually covered their sin. And this shows us that now Adam and Eve could continue to have a relationship with God. It'd be different, but it would be through that sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Now, I hope you guys have been seeing the symbolism in these closing verses, because this points to how God would send his son to die on our behalf that we might be clothed, not with our own righteousness, not with us trying to find leaves and stick us on our body so we're not ashamed before God, but God clothing us with his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10 says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. You see, you and I, when we don't come to Christ on, on, on our behalf, meaning we don't come trying to work our way there, but we allow what Jesus did to cover us, then we can have salvation. As we close, sin brought thorns, and Jesus endured a crown of thorns to bring us salvation. Sin brought sweat, and Jesus sweat, as it were, great drops of blood to win our salvation. Sin brought sorrow, and Jesus became a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief to save us. Sin brought death, and Jesus tasted death for everyone that we might be saved. Here in just the third chapter of Genesis is the gospel. And so tonight as we worship, worship team, you can come out. As we partake in communion tonight, this is what we think about. We think about what Jesus did for us that we might live. He had to die. And we see the picture here is that at the end of the day, the working of Satan was defeated on that cross. Satan thought he won the day, but Jesus rose from that grave, securing our salvation. And so as we worship tonight, we think about his blood. We think about his body that was taken for us. God had this plan all along. And you and I, as his sons and daughters, get to be a part of it. And so as we, uh, there's going to be communion in the back. Again, don't all rush back there. We have about a 30-minute period of time that we're going to be able to worship. And so you, you get right with God. You worship this first song. No, no one get up during this first song. I mean, you could stand, but like no one go and get, get worship. This first song is about the blood. And so I want you guys to think about it and think about what Jesus did. And as that, as that happens, as the Spirit stirs your heart, then you worship God. Let's pray. Father, we are um, thankful that that we can't do it, that the shame and separation that we experience because of our sin, we can't make it right. No matter how many good things we do, this, the, the scales don't tip. We need you to clothe us with the righteousness of Christ that we might come to you. And so God, we worship you tonight. We fix our attention on you. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.